deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial, twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Don't wait for the lease to expire. You really got to spend time, I would say a year out from a lease expiring to start having conversations about renewals and getting ahead of that vacancy and start marketing the space so that you're not sitting dark on a space. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Vic Mehta. Vic is joining us from Downers Grove, Illinois. He is the founder of Investia Capital, which is a syndication company that focuses on retail. Vic's portfolio consists of $22 million of assets under management. He is a GP on five buildings and an LP on one building. Vic, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today? I'm great, Ash. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Vic, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, I'll tell you, I started out as a retailer my uh, entire career. And then when I had the opportunity to start acquiring some of the properties that my businesses were in, I took advantage of that. And along the way, I met some great people and started investing with other people in their deals and really learned what I liked about the syndication business, what I didn't like about it, and then decided in 2020 that I wanted to focus on syndication full-time. And since my background is being in retail, I thought the retail sector would be the ideal place for me to focus that. Vic, you mentioned your businesses. What businesses were they? So currently, I'm in the Cricket Wireless business. I've always been in wireless my entire career. Been involved in a couple of different franchises that I've been in and also exited, but currently I'm still operating 21 Cricket Wireless locations. All right. So you're making a lot of landlords a lot of money by signing <laughs> yes. those leases. And you saw that they were making a lot of money. You wanted a piece of that. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> now, let me play devil's advocate. What about the people that say, stick to what you know, stick to your core? Why not just use all your capital to continue expanding stores? 
you know what? I understand where they're coming from. And I have an analogy that I use is that we're not going to buy a cow just because we want a piece of steak. So we're not necessarily going to buy a property just because we want to lease 1200 square feet of it. But I'll tell you this, my goal in life, it really COVID has redirected my focus is I want to be in the passive game. I don't necessarily want to be in the active managing of businesses, managing of staff. So luckily I have a good team in place. I have good people that are running that business so I could focus on the real estate side of our business. Vic, what was it about COVID that changed your mindset? I don't want to say being forced to spend time at home, but really spending that time with my family and kind of just really realigning priorities, I would say. That's incredible. Similar story, if I could share real quick. My wife is a physician and her outlook on work was, why am I going to retire? What am I going to do? And COVID for the first time ever forced her to close her office for a while, be at home and have free time, which high performers like you probably have never had free time. So you got a taste of that and you're like, wow, all right, I could deal with this. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. And the message that I've been sharing with my wife is that I don't ever want to have to be somewhere. I want to go where I want to go. I want to do what I want to do, but I don't want to be forced to do it anymore. So luckily I'm in that position that I could do that. And now taking some investors along for the ride with me, it's been perfect. It's been the perfect model for myself as well as some of my investors. Vic, let's dive into that journey. So you are an established businessman, an established retailer. How do you go about buying retail centers? So having that experience on retail as an operator really gives me some insight into what works, what doesn't work. So everybody is so down on the retail sector right now. And I think what I've learned is that retail is not going away. There is essential retail out there. So what I focus on is a pretty specific model, which is the outlots to the power centers, the Walmarts, the Home Depot outlots, where there is daily traffic that's going to be there. And that has tenants that people are always going to need to go to that is not going to be replaced by the internet. That's not going to necessarily always be shut down because of a pandemic or things like that. So using that experience as a retailer is what's really helped me make that transition into the retail landlord space. And what were some of the difficult learning curves that you encountered? As far as when acquiring, some of the things is just kind of figuring out which tenants are, I guess, credit worthy, if you will, and which ones have the runway to continue to operate and then which ones are going to eventually be phased out. And do you focus solely on outlots or do you also buy centers? Right now I'm focused solely on outlots. That's been my bread and butter. And I don't want to mess with the formula that worked. If this is working for us and it allows us to provide a good return to investors, that's what I want to stick with. And for our best ever listeners, an outlot can be described as something closer to the road, in the parking lot, standalone. Are your centers standalone or are they multi-tenant? They're multi-tenant centers. Okay. So there's a Walmart or a giant anchor behind you and you've got a smaller strip in front. Exactly. And part of the reason for that is the sizes make sense, right? So our tenants range from 1,200 to maybe 5,000 square feet. Whereas if you're in the power center in the back, because of the size, the depth, those spaces are typically larger. If a vacancy happens, you're a little bit more limited on who you can relet that to. Vic, do you buy existing centers or do you build from the ground up? Everything that I've done is existing. I'm currently in the process of developing my first building here in Downers Grove, but everything that I've done so far has been existing. Man, you're really straying from operating cricket stores, huh? 
<laughs> you would think that, but again, just being in retail, it does give you that background of what works and what doesn't. And I look at things differently than a lot of landlords would look at, or a lot of investors might look at that are coming in and haven't been in retail before. How do you look at things differently? What's an example? An example would be access, co-tenancy. Is there synergy between the tenants? Competition. If we're here and we've got this group of tenants, where are their competitors? A lot of investors might not think to dive into that, but I'm looking at it as what's the longevity of this tenant? What's the likelihood of their success in this center if we invested it? Let's dive into that. You also mentioned you look at the credit worthiness of the tenants. Do you just look for national or regional tenants? No, absolutely not. A lot of people are really keen on finding the national tenants with the A credit, but I feel like there is always going to be a place for that mom and pop tenant. And what I like about them is when you're dealing with somebody, use an example of a nail salon, that's their business. That's their bread and butter. That's how they feed their family. So they're going to do whatever it takes to make that business successful. Whereas maybe a national chain that's looking at thousands of stores across the board might have a threshold say, hey, this one's just not meeting our minimum and then they pull out, right? So no, I don't discriminate against the mom and pop tenants, if you will. How does a national tenant pull out if they have a lease? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> a lot of these leases we're buying, sometimes they do have exits in them and, and there's performance clauses that if the location doesn't hit a certain threshold in sales that they have the ability to pull out. When I do leases, I try not to do that, but sometimes you get so hung up on the excitement of having the national tenant that you'll do whatever it takes to get them in there. So those triple net leases are not always what they're cracked up to be. Yeah. You got to really dive into the details, especially if there's performance minimum standards and things like that, that they have to have. So those things, they're just as good as any other lease at that point. You also mentioned synergies amongst tenants. Can you dive into that? Absolutely. When we're looking at centers, For example, what kind of audience does a certain group of tenants attract? When we look at centers, we call it the soccer mom centers. So you'll have the nail salon, the hair salon, places that the moms are going to go to and frequent. So is there synergy amongst those tenants and is there an audience for those tenants that they'll be able to target? Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that you recognize the importance of neighborhood businesses in a neighborhood center. The insurance guy, the pizza guy, the deli, the hair salon, the nail salon, they're always going to be needed. Even during COVID, they were thriving. And those national tenants, not to name names, but several of them, even though they were making more money during COVID, told their landlords, hey, we expect rent concessions just because they can. They can throw their weight around. Absolutely. Yeah, you're 100% right. We experienced that same thing. So what would your ideal tenant mix look like? So one of the things that I'm very focused on now is medical users. And when I say medical users, I'm talking about the dentists, the optometrists. We're seeing a little bit of a shift from some of these medical practices not being in medical office buildings and moving more to a retail storefront. Their patients are more comfortable just being able to walk right in. Sometimes they have things where they could go out to the vehicle and do things. So that's a big focus of mine is a medical user. So I try to get at least 30% medical user. I'd like to see 30% national credit. And then the remaining, I like to see the locals, or I'd like to have value add opportunities where maybe there's one or two spaces that are vacant that we could fill and add some value to the center when we're acquiring it. Do you always look for some upside in terms of vacancies when you acquire, or do you buy fully leased centers? No, I don't always look for it. One of the ways that we create upside is just looking at the leases and if they have natural 
rent increases, that'll create natural upside in the property. So I do acquire 100% full centers, but with those, we want to make sure that they're cash flowing properly to provide a good return for investors. And then again, they'll just naturally have some upside potential with lease bumps. Vic, we all know when you sell these centers, if they're full of all national tenants, you get a more compressed cap rate. Why not do all national tenants instead of mom and pops? Why not do that? Again, the likelihood of all nationals going out could be higher. And also at the same time, when you sell, yes, you have a a more compressed cap rate, but you're also paying more if you're buying that center with those tenants in there already. So that would be why. So again, I'm looking for cash flow. I love having the mix of national and local tenants, but the cash flow is king in, in our business. And when you have a vacancy, how do you attract a national tenant? I have access to a couple of databases. So I'm actually a licensed broker here in Illinois. I'm on CoStar. I have a lot of relationships with tenant reps. So really focusing on contacting them, getting ahead of it when you see a vacancy coming up and just making them aware of the situation and, and constantly staying in front of them. And what are the challenges of getting a national tenant in? Sometimes it'll be proximity to other locations that they already have. Obviously, they're a lot larger. So they're competing against themselves. They don't want to cannibalize themselves. Sometimes it's just space requirements. We might be just a little bit too small or a little bit too big for them. They have much stricter guidelines on what they're looking for. And what about in terms of TI money? I'm willing to put up TI for the right deal. So yeah, that is one of the things that national tenants are going to require is a healthy chunk of TI. But for me, that's the cost of acquiring that tenant. We're willing to put that in there. And the beauty of mom and pops, have you noticed that often you can give them just a white box? They go in there, put their own time and money into improving the space. Absolutely. And they also continue to maintain that space after they build out as they're operating. They take very good care of it. We'll get back to the show. with first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. What's holding you back from getting into apartment building deals? Is it knowledge, fear, inability to take action, lack of support? If it's any of these things, then I suggest you consider Deal Maker Mentoring with Michael Blanc. Michael's program is the most effective program to help you syndicate your first apartment building deal. During Deal Maker Mentoring, you'll work directly with one of Michael's experienced mentors who have successfully replaced their income with apartment buildings. They've already done what you want to do, which is become financially free. So in addition to providing their own syndication experience, They've been trained in Michael's unique deal maker blueprint designed to help you do your first deal and become financially free just like them in the next one to three years. To find out more, text the word Joe to 66866. I know Michael's going to get you to where you'd like to be. Again, text the word Joe to 66866. Do it right now while it's fresh on your mind and let's get you started with your own syndication business. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. 
Do you have these conversations with the multifamily guys where they're always repairing and fixing their tenants' damage? Whereas here, your tenants are improving. They're remodeling bathrooms, redoing their lobby. Absolutely. And even with the national tenants, you're seeing them have strict guidelines for their brands and having to remodel every five or 10 years and refresh the spaces. So yeah, I do kind of laugh. I hear about people dealing with that on the multifamily side. And again, it's a lot harder for somebody to pick up and just move their business versus pick up and just move to another apartment. So I think overall, that's why I like retail and, and like the commercial sector a lot better. Yeah, that's a great point. Vic, what was it about being on the client side, if you will, that helped you in this business? As far as being on the LP side, or are you talking about the uh, the retailer side as a store owner operator? As a store owner, again, just getting the experience of what works. I'm not going to say that every single one of my businesses has been successful. I've seen the ones that have failed and I've picked up on why they failed and and what happened along the way and what could I have done better when I was selecting the site or negotiating the lease. So being able to have that whole 360 degree view of the relationship has helped me quite a bit. And you are a rarity in that you've been on both sides. So let's dive into some lease clauses. What's beneficial to the tenant versus the landlord and vice versa? What are some clauses that you like to include now, but maybe you did not like as the retailer? A big focus of mine now is to have annual rent increases instead of seeing the rent bumps at a five-year mark. I like to see smaller bumps every year for a couple of reasons. Obviously, that's making them compound faster, but also because that's adding value to the center every single year versus having to wait five years to see it add in the value just from a rent increase. So from a landlord perspective, annual rent bumps is something that I'm very focused on getting now. From a tenant perspective, I would say TI is really crucial now. We're seeing a lot more requests for larger amounts of TI. And the interesting thing there is, People are actually willing to pay more than my asking rent in exchange for TI, which again, if I have confidence that the business is going to be successful, I'm willing to do that. If I'm concerned that, hey, this guy is going to open up this business, I'm going to pay for him to open up this business. And then two years from now, he's not going to be there anymore. I'm a little bit reluctant to do that. And to break that down for our best ever listeners, it's you're willing to give the tenant $50,000 upfront for maybe a $3 increase per square foot in rent. But when you go to sell, that increase in NOI is a multiple of what you've given as TI. Absolutely. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars in difference when you're looking at it on the cap rate. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's well worth the money. Why are you attracted to medical tenants? The pandemic is really what's taught me necessity for that. So that's the reason for it is those are the ones that are going to be pandemic proof. What type of medical specifically? So I love dentists. I think dental practices have always had a a place in retail. The investment that goes into putting a dental practice, again, it's not easy to just pick up and move that. I also like optometry. I think optometry is one of those things that people are going to need to come in. It's a very personal business. It's kind of half medical, half retail, if you will, but it's a very personal business and people are going to always need to come in for that. And we're seeing a lot of urgent cares now. That's been the big thing. People just want to be able to get in and out instead of having to go to the hospital or to make appointments at their doctor office. So they've been a big new tenant of ours. When you were a retailer, did you have to disclose sales? In some situations, we had landlords that did have that in their lease. Yes. Do you put that in your lease to see the tenant's sales numbers? On some of them, I do, not on all of them. On some of them that I'm more intrigued by, yes, I do ask for that. Why? 
just to be able to keep an eye on what's going on as far as how much of the rent is a percentage of their sales. It's not just so that when it comes time to renegotiate that we have some leverage knowing what their sales are, but also just to be able to make sure that the rents are in line with what's going on for volume. It's also a marketing tool when you're able to be able to go out and say, hey, we're seeing this X dollar of sales per square foot at our center. It is something that attracts buyers when you're looking to sell the center. And what if their sales numbers year over year are declining? Would you reduce their rent? Well, I'm not going to proactively reduce somebody's rent, but certainly it gives them an opportunity to make a case for a rent reduction. And again, it's case by case. If the tenant is somebody that we see has long-term viability, has been loyal, yeah, there's certainly conversations that we'll have to look at that. Have you encountered that? I have. We had a tenant that we actually allowed him to buy down the rent. I think he was able to take some of the money from PPP, give us a lump sum up front and almost get two to one for his dollar for a rent reduction over the years that he had remaining on his lease. Yes. That's a great creative solution. If somebody wanted to get involved in retail, let's say they're a multifamily or a residential investor, what advice would you give them? If somebody's new to retail, I would tell them to look at the areas that they're familiar with, centers that they drive by on a regular basis. They have an idea of what's going on. And I would start there. I would look at getting into a neighborhood that you're familiar with. Maybe one that kind of your multifamily tenants are frequenting already would be a good place to start. And what are some hard lessons you've learned along the way in this sector? I would say Access has been a hard lesson that I've learned along the way as far as making sure that the center's got the right accesses to be able to support customers coming into the center. I've acquired centers that didn't have that and they've struggled to fill. What does that mean? It's just difficult to find a parking spot, to find the store, find the entrance? If you can't get into the building in the first place, it's going to make it very hard for you to be able to lease that space out. What's another hard lesson you've learned? I would say getting ahead of vacancies. Don't wait for the lease to expire. You really got to spend time, I would say a year out from a lease expiring to start having conversations about renewals and getting ahead of that vacancy and start marketing the space so that you're not sitting dark on a space. And how did you go about wanting to syndicate deals? So again, when the pandemic happened and I was looking at how I wanted to make changes in my life, I had some friends that wanted to invest in properties too. And as an LP, I had been involved in the syndication model. So I took what I had learned from that, what I liked, what I didn't like with people that I had invested in and thought I would come up with this new brand and new company and and try to provide access to deals for people that didn't have access to deals. So that's the reasons why I went behind it is really to kind of not only bring myself to that next level, but also be able to bring other people along for the ride. What's your typical investor profile? Typical investor is a professional W-2 employee, high earning that doesn't necessarily have access to opportunities like this, has capital sitting in the bank. They're already diversified in their 401k and IRAs and just looking for new exciting opportunities. So that's been a model that's worked for me and people that are looking to diversify and get into different buckets. What were items that you didn't like about your LP investment and what did you do to incorporate a change into your model? Number one was communication. I just felt like a lot of syndicators just don't do a good job of communicating along the way. In the beginning, when the deal is about to close, they're not doing a good job keeping you up to date once you write that check. And then also along the way as things go on. So I've tried to incorporate technology into communicating. 
I had a set model of communicating every quarter with what's going on with not just the financials, but just overall what's going on with the center and really just making sure that I stay on top of that. What technology did you implement? I actually subscribed to InvestNext. I thought it was a great portal for my investors to be able to log in and get access to numbers and see what's going on with their investments. And then also it allows me to blast out communications to all of them with what's going on in their investment. Vic, how do you attract more investors and what's the education that you have to provide in teaching them about retail investments? Because there's a lot of that, oh, there's a retail apocalypse coming. Amazon's going to use SERP retail. <laughs> yeah, I'm attracting investors really from word of mouth. It's my current investors that are happy with what I'm doing and what's going on with their investments that are really sharing it with their friends and family. And that's how I've been able to attract new investors. And then education-wise, it's not just necessarily an education on the retail sector, but on the syndication model. What is it that you're actually buying? What is it that you're actually investing in? How are you going to see a return on that investment? So I would say I spend 75% of my time investing people on what syndication actually is, and then the rest of it on why I think the investment's a good investment and why I think it's a good choice. What's a typical structure for your investors? Typically, we're getting a 8% pref. We're looking at five-year deals and try to get IRR about 15 to 17%. And I do a 70-30 split at the end on the waterfall. So that's a deal structure. Do you invest alongside with your investors? Absolutely. One of my things that I'm fortunate that I'm able to do this, one of my things that I really try to abide by is that I will always be equal to or greater than the largest investor in the deal. I love that. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Stick with what you know and what you see on a daily basis. It's something that you got to be able to get your arms around if you need to. Vic, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. What's the best ever book you recently read? So I wouldn't say it was recent, but when I first got into the syndication model, Hunter Thompson's Raising Capital for Real Estate really helped me and helped educate me on some things with syndication. And Vic, what's the best ever way you like to give back? So from a time perspective, I love talking to new investors and new real estate brokers and helping share some knowledge that I have. And from a money perspective, my wife and I really like raising money for causes that are local that don't necessarily get the attention that the big causes get. So we like help doing fundraising for local causes. And Vic, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I would say my website's probably the best place, investia.com, I-N-D-V-E-S-T-I-A. There is an opportunity to schedule a call with me, which I'm happy to talk to anybody anytime about anything that we've talked about here. And also an opportunity to register for our portal so you keep up to date with our newest offerings. Awesome, Vic. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. From starting out as a successful retailer to seeing the landlord side of things and making the moves necessary to acquire retail real estate and now syndicating. Thank you again for sharing that. Thank you for having me, Ash. Appreciate it. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with anyone you think can benefit from it. Also, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.